Hey everyone, welcome to the NetSuite podcast. I'm your host, Kendall Fisher, and I am teaming up once again with our business and finance editor, Megan O'Brien, who's helping me co-host yet another episode of Office of the CFO. Hi, Megan. Hi, Kendall. Thanks so much for having me on again. I'm excited for this episode and our guests today. It should be a good one. I couldn't agree more. We have had several amazing CFOs on our Office of the CFO series thus far, and today we're adding another name to the list, as you said. But Megan, will you go ahead and do the honors of introducing him? Yes. So on this episode, we're chatting with Jack McCullough. He's 26-time, I repeat, 26-time CFO and author of Secrets of Rockstar CFOs and the president of the CFO Leadership Council. That's right. We're going to dive into his career journey, including his early career as a CPA and then a controller, his own secrets to success as a CFO, as well as the traits he thinks all CFOs need to be successful. And of course, how those traits have evolved, especially amid changing business conditions as of late COVID, a recession of inflation and so on. I'm excited to dive in. So let's not wait another second. Our interview with Jack coming up after this. You're listening to the NetSuite Podcast, where we discuss what's happening within NetSuite, why we're doing it, and where we're heading in the future. We'll dive into the details about the software and the people at NetSuite who are behind all the moving parts. We'll also feature customer growth stories, discussing the ups and downs of running a company, and how one integrated system can help your business continue to scale. Hi, Jack. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, us too. And now usually Kendall likes to break the ice in these recordings, but I'm going to jump in here and do it myself this time. Jack, do you have a fun fact that you can share with us that not a lot of people know? Um, yeah, I have one. It's kind of interesting. And I was adopted when I was a baby. Oh my gosh. And um, so my parents, uh, my biological parents ended up starting families separately. So I've two sets of half brothers and sisters. Wow. And if you, I live near Boston, Massachusetts. If you drive north to Manchester, New Hampshire, I have a half brother whose name is Jack. Oh. And oh. if you drive 20 minutes south of Boston to a town called Quincy, Massachusetts, I have another half brother whose name is also Jack. Oh so my gosh. I, I have two half brothers named Jack. So. Wow. Wow. What are the chances? That is a, that is a great fun fact. I love that. It is indeed, but we were all born in the early 60s, late 50s. Mm-hmm. And of course, President Jack Kennedy right. made the name uh-huh. really popular in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, there are a lot of Johns in my in my uh, first grade class. So. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, we already got we already got a little personal there, Jack, but um, we're gonna get even even more personal. Just kidding. Uh, but I, I do want to hear about your history a bit. Um, so first. Did you always know you wanted to get into finance? Um, I, I don't know about always. You know, as, <laughs> as, as a child, I, I had illusions that I would be a professional football or basketball player. But, you know, when I didn't make the high school team, I figured that probably wasn't a realistic path. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I did study in accounting uh, in, right out of high school. So I think pretty early, I, I was probably on the accounting and finance path. Mm. Got it. Um, and did, like, did those, I guess, how did that change or transform over time? Um, and, and why, I guess. 
Yeah, in terms of why I went into it, um, you know, I'm not sure that at 17 when I, you know, picked my major in college that I really even knew what an accountant did. But as I studied it, it turned out I ended up being pretty good at it. And also, I just kind of liked it because, uh, you know, particularly at that point in my life, I liked putting things together like a puzzle. And mm-hmm. accounting kind of was like that for me, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, it, accounting works uh, for better or worse, it can work. And I, I like the type of puzzles that there is a, a correct answer to, like, you know, the types of pu- puzzles that don't necessarily have an answer. Well, you know, that's, that's great for an engineer, but not necessarily for an accountant. So, you know, I just was probably drawn to it personality-wise. Interesting. And it's always funny that we choose our majors when we're 17. Just no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it served me well, but yes, like if, if for some reason I was picking my major as a middle-aged person, there's, you know, not a chance I would study accounting, right? But, uh, but you know, I middle-class kid, I wanted to, you know, have a good career path when I graduated. And, you know, accounting was one that uh, was within my reach. So you ended up studying accounting in college at Suffolk University and then getting your MBA in finance and entrepreneurship at MIT. Uh, If you were talking to other finance executives or budding ones, and you are, would you tell them to get an MBA? I would say uh, that there are a lot of paths to becoming a CFO if that's the goal. Um, but there was a study by Spencer Stewart a couple of years ago, and they did amongst the first Fortune 1000. And it was the first time ever more CFOs in the Fortune 1000 hold MBAs than they're in CPAs. And that just shows that the CFO role has changed dramatically. It's not just all about that accounting and finance skill set. So, you know, I don't want to tell somebody, yeah, you have to get an MBA. But I will say if you have the resources to do it, you know, take a couple of years off. I think studying MBA, it'll open all sorts of doors for you. Hmm. And, you know, it'll just create a more interesting career path for you. Certainly, you know, in terms of dollars and cents, you can have a great career path, uh, you know, in finance or otherwise without one. But I think in terms of exposing yourself to more interesting, challenging work at a pretty young age, an MBA is a great credential to do that. So you get your MBA. Um I, I want to know about the stepping stones um, that got you into a the finance world, but but b twenty six CFO roles. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the the roles that you uh, that you took on um, early in your career? Yeah, I just can't get along with people, so I switching <laughs> No, actually, I started. I was sort of on a conventional path to being a CFO. I started my career in public accounting with um, the firm at the time was Pete Marek and Mitchell. Uh, young people know it as KPMG. Um, and, you know, I did a few years there, became a CPA. And then I was accounting manager, controller, and eventually a CFO, getting an MBA along the way in there. And, you know, the, the 26, that is a number that jumps out at people a little bit. But uh, what happened is shortly after the dot-com crash, I was a CFO of a company that, you know, didn't make it. And so I started a, a kind of by accident, but, you know, I was, I had a newborn at home, so I had to do something. And I started a part-time CFO practice. So even though I, I had 26 CFO jobs, you know, I might've had three or four at any given point in time. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a fun way to make a living uh, mm-hmm. as a part-time CFO. Cause you know, every day is different because you're working in a different company every single day. So. Mm-hmm. 
Well, did you focus on any particular like industry or was it kind of a variety of industries and what impact did that have on your kind of journey? Yeah, I, um, I would like to have focused a lot on technology companies and I had a, a good number of tech companies in my portfolio. Boston, as you probably know, is kind of a poor man's Silicon Valley. I probably just <laughs> antagonized all my friends. But, I know, know, I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, they all hate me. Uh, but, um, yeah. but uh, no, it, um, you, you know, we, we have a great technology community. We don't necessarily have the successes that Silicon Valley and San Francisco Bay have, but it's a, a very robust economy. So mm-hmm. a person looking to work in that industry could do so in Boston. But right after the dot-com era, I found a, a niche. It was, it's not one that I would like to have done very long, but there were a lot of companies that were kind of winding down. Mm-hmm. And I became really good at you know, winding down a company's operations. So I had a, a number of VCs and PE investors that just wanted to kind of get out of their companies. They'd been bringing it for three months to a year to, to wind the company down. Mm-hmm. Um, which it, it's, you know, it, it pays the bills. It's, as you might yeah. imagine, it's, it's, it's not a very fun way to make a living. And like I, it's, once I got a reputation for doing it, you know, like my car was vandalized in parking lots a couple of times and that sort of thing. Like people knew who I was and it was sort of like bad news if I was at your company. No way. Me, yeah. Yeah, I was oh not my... Mr. Popularity. I could probably not run <sighs> for office in Massachusetts because- of Oh this. my gosh. Wow. Um, now were these like, you know, I don't know, was it corporate companies? Was it public private companies? I mean, or was it really just a a variety? A lot of them were dot-com companies, um, that just failed. Um, you know, I, I, I go back a little uh, further than you, but you know, the dot-com era, it was just, it was a crazy amount of money that was raised from venture capital and other investors. Uh-huh. But, you know, candidly, like a lot of the companies should have not have raised the amount of money that they did. Mm-hmm. And when the, you know, the, the balloon popped, no one was going to keep putting money into these companies. And, you know, the, the company that I worked for just, you know, it wasn't the worst company in the world. But um, when, when things went awry, we had something like, you know, like 160 employees and no real means to pay them beyond the next few months. Mm-hmm. And that was a relatively common story during the dot-com era. So, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, anytime there's a down cycle, there are ways to make money from that. And, you know, they're legit and, and ethical and everything else. But, you know, it, it's it's just not the most pleasant way to <laughs> make a living, right? I mean, I probably did 40 layoffs over a two-year period. And, wow. you know, you're you're ruining people's lives. I mean, if, if I didn't do it, somebody else would have. And, and I, right. I recognized that it was necessary and had to be done. And, you know, I, I got good at it and can do it in a dignified manner. But it, it wasn't like, oh, boy, I didn't get excited to go to work every day. Yeah. And nothing else I learned. I did not want to do that for a living. I was going to say, interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, like you said, so it's, it's a job somebody had to handle. Um, and you did really find a niche. Um, would you suggest the same thing for other, like for today's aspiring CFOs, is it important to find kind of a specific niche to really fall into, or do you think the more variety, the better? It's, it's an interesting question, Kendall. And there was a point, like, I sort of felt like I could be a CFO in every industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this is going back a ways. And even with hindsight, I think at the time that was probably true. 
but today the, the CFOs are taking on so much more responsibility outside the world of finance and accounting. So it's all about strategy and leadership and communications and interacting with investors and customers and everything else. And unless you're a prodigy, it would be difficult to master that in two or three different industries, right? Like, you know, someone who might be a great CFO in the tech industry might not be successful at all working in life sciences because right. the jobs are just so different. And, you know, it's not like they couldn't learn it, but it might be hard to persuade somebody to give you the opportunity to learn it. So mm -hmm. I would say, you know, find industries, you know, that are related, that, uh, that excite you, that the work is interesting and, you know, that you can work with good people and focus on those. I, cause I don't think you can master six industries anymore. I just, I just think the world is too complex for CFOs. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because, and we, we chatted on this before we hit record here today, but um, we, we recent, we recently spoke with Bola um, Williams, Ollie, and, and you've actually worked with her um, a few times too. Um, and she, you know, that was one of her big things, but she really did find her, her niche in arc in architectural firms. Um, and that has really helped dr drive her success. So um, I do think, you know, you guys, you guys got something there for sure. Yeah. And she, um, out of all the CFOs I know, she like genuinely loves what she's doing. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, you know, I'm probably a letdown after interviewing her, but uh, I, Oh, it, come you know. on. No way. No <laughs> way. Well, you know, she's a little bit more interesting having been raised in, as by a single mom in, was it Kenya that she grew up in or something like that? Ni so, yeah. Nigeria. Nigeria. Right. So yeah. Yeah. You know, you just don't meet a lot of CFOs with, with her, uh, early story. So yeah, it is. It is very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of experience earlier in your career, you became a controller. Briefly, can you tell us what does that role entail and what skills did you need to become successful in it? Sure. And actually, before as a controller, I did work in public accounting as an auditor. Mm. And that that led to the controller role. And, you know, to be honest, I wasn't like a very good auditor, but I was a good controller. Um, Auditors require a little bit of a, a sort of a healthy skepticism and, you know, maybe I don't want to say a distrust of people, but a, a willingness to and a, a, an aptitude for, you know, looking beyond the obvious and doing some kind of detective work. And, you know, it, it wasn't really for me. I was good at building things, which I found in a controller uh, type of role. And, you know, back then, controllerships were all about... Um, you know, finance and accounting, closing the books, creating reports, uh, working with the CFOs. The job wasn't strategic or cross-functional at all. Uh, but, you know, it was a great role coming out of public accounting for somebody like me. And it's, it's just a different skill set even back then for, from being a CFO. In fact, I was, I was a pretty good controller, but I actually was, a, I think I was a better CFO than I was a controller, even though theoretically it's a more difficult job. And, you know, when I got promoted to the CFO job for the first time, people were skeptical because, you know, there were better controllers out there for sure. But I, I just found the CFO job a better match for my particular skill set. So that's really interesting um, because we, you know, we, we talk to a lot of CFOs, but we don't really get uh, necessarily the controller perspective. Um, were the, what were some of the KPIs or metrics that you tracked as a controller? Sure. And, you know, keeping in mind, you know, I, I'm, uh, we're going back a little ways. I was, you know, I wasn't exactly <laughs> closing the books on stone tablets or that type of thing. <laughs> but, uh, 
but you know, I um, you know, I don't know that I heard of the, the phrase KPI when I was a controller. You know, so I did track as a controller a, a lot of what I'll call traditional uh, accounting stuff. Like a, I worked a lot of times in high tech manufacturing companies. So things like inventory turnover, uh, day sales outstanding, uh, a lot of cash related type of stuff. So kind of, I, I don't want to say old school, but some real basic blocking and tackling financial reporting was what I focused on in my you know, role as a controller. Valuable stuff. It, it wasn't you know, necessarily the most fascinating stuff, but it's valuable information for CFOs to know and understand. No question about it. Well, so you say traditional. Um, do you think that's changed? What skills do controllers need today to be successful and what metrics should they be looking at? Yeah, it's interesting because when I read a controller job description today, it, it feels a lot like a CFO job description 20, 25 years ago to me. And uh, there's a phrase you may or may not have heard, but controllers are the new CFOs. And, um, and I, I think in a lot of cases, it's fair as the CFO role has evolved and gotten more strategic and more about communication and leadership and cross-functionality, it's only inevitable that the right-hand person would uh, grow along with the CFO. So, you know, I think uh, CFOs, they need to start focusing on more globally. They need to develop a vision beyond just accounting. Mm -hmm. uh, and PS, they still need to master accounting. So that's kind of a difficult thing to do. Uh, and, you know, things are very, it's, it's different in every industry, but, you know, they can't, if they're just going to report old school accounting, that's not a great value add anymore. You know, things like revenue per employee, uh, revenue growth, pipeline growth analysis, uh, sales conversion rates, cash flow margin, uh, you know, by product, by division, whatever it might be. These are all things that controllers today can and should be reporting to their CFOs. Really insightful. Um, and, and I actually kind of want to take it back to, to something you said earlier, which was, you know, you, you definitely felt like the CFO position was a better fit for you. So mm -hmm. I, I'm curious how, I mean, you, you kind of touched on it, but really how did, well, first, how did your experience as a controller help you step into the CFO position? And then why, why was that kind of more, you know, better for you? Yeah. I, I by the way, I enjoyed being a controller. You yes. know, I, I I was well prepared to be a controller because I studied accounting and then right. I worked in public accounting. So, uh, but you know, this is probably going to shock you, Kendall. But sometimes accounting isn't as sexy and glamorous as it seems to the outside <laughs> world. Uh, and you know, I just—I I guess I, I sort of am a bit of a problem solver. I have a very healthy imagination. I think strategically, and just after several years of doing it. I didn't get bored because I was great at it. I just got bored because it wasn't that interesting. But mm. when the CFO role opened and suddenly I got a chance to, you know, be making presentations, taking advantage of, you know, some, I developed some good communication skills. I'd like to think uh, working mm. with investors, raising venture capital. Uh, I just was really good at that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I am one of those CFOs. A lot of times you'll meet them. I, uh, I needed a good controller by my side to, mm -hmm. you know, sort of to make the trains run on time so that I could do sort of a lot of external facing functions that CFOs, even back then were expected to do. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing, Jack, is you were a good schmoozer. Is that what, is that what we're getting at here? Yeah, I was really <laughs> good. Put a couple of drinks in me and I can charm the birds from the trees. So. <laughs> 
Um, no, but, but on a, on a serious note, you know, you kind of touched on that. You, you really, it's more, you know, communication, working with, you know, investors, um, obviously full, uh, really kind of full company transparency leadership. Um, but can you kind of get specific? What are some of the key differences between C- the CFO and the controller really in the, in the day-to-day kind of job function? Yeah, I would say um, a great CFO is very cross-functional. Mm. And a friend of mine uh, who um, I won't name her because I don't have permission, but she's a very <laughs> successful CFO. Mm-hmm. And uh, she told me she doesn't think of herself as a finance executive. She thinks of herself as a versatile cross-functional executive who mm. happens to be a financial expert. Mm. And that it's That's a bit really of a mind shift switch, right? But yeah. like controllers aren't yet at the point where they can do that, right? They, they right. do need to be experts in finance and accounting, which is very challenging to do. So they're not going to have the ability to, you know, sort of be as cross-functional, although they need to understand it on, you know, some level for sure. They can't just be finance and accounting. But the other thing is, you know, the I, I used the analogy a moment ago about, uh, or metaphor might be the word I'm looking for, about mm-hmm. making the trains run on time. Mm-hmm. And there's a big element of that still with the controllers. It's not a perfect metaphor, but it, it is largely an internal job. Right. Uh, you know, you are closing the books, you are doing financial reports and whatnot. And often it's the CFO who's outward facing, you know, particularly if you're a public company, this, the CFO, you know, they're going to know all of the investors in the company, Wall Street wants to hear from him or her. In fact, I was told by a uh, Fox News business reporter a few years ago that this was during a crisis, but uh, she told me that during a crisis, they actually will go to the CFO first. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful that the CFO has a relationship with the media, but they sort of know that the CFO is kind of, that they say what they mean and they mean what they say. Mm-hmm. And they're not suggesting that other executives are dishonest, not at all, but most CEOs grew up in sales and marketing, and that frames their communication style. But right. a CFO who, who often grew up in accounting and finance, they're not spinning things, they're not positioning things, they're just kind of telling you the truth. And wow. it's an invaluable thing, so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been talking so much lately um, about the you know, evolving role of the CFO, what it means today. And I don't think anybody's put it the way that you just put it, which is, you know, you're, you're, and I'm going to butcher this. So you can, you can say it better than me after this, but like, you know, you're, you're really a strategic leader with a, with expertise in finance. Um, and I think that's a really, really great way to look at the role of the CFO for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. The CFO in theory could plug any role, any role in the company. Wow. In fact, um, one of the, a CFO I know, um, she had an interesting take on things. She, um, she was looking for a professional mentor early in her career. She was a controller mm-hmm. and she worked at a uh, global consumer products company. Her mentor that she took on actually was a salesperson, not another finance person. And, you know, she was like in her early thirties at this point in time. So it was kind of a savvy thing to do. But she sort of felt like, look, I can do the finance accounting better than most CFOs. I mm-hmm. want to be a well-rounded, you know, customer-focused financial leader when I get the opportunity. Wow. And uh, what's interesting, they, uh, a few years ago, they were still working together, but at a different company. And once a month, they switched roles. They would, um, she had like finance and accounting meetings, and she would have him run the finance and accounting meetings. 
and she couldn't participate. And she would actually run the sales and marketing meetings. Wow. It it just gave them both a better perspective on what the other was doing. And, uh, you know, we've all worked in companies where, you know, there may be a little tension between accounting and finance versus Mm -hmm. um, sales and marketing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I worked the first job I worked at, they, they called the marketing people called us all uh, bean counters. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and we we call them arts and crafts um but you know it, it's not the most productive thing right and right. you have a relationship like that you know it, it would only be good natured but back then i think they actually thought of us as bean counters so and the, and my how that has changed um of course though i am going to ask we talked about some of the you know the kpis and the metrics um that are important to the role of the controller what's the most what are what metrics are most important uh to a cfo you know there's a lot and again it's variance by uh, by industry of course but i would say the ones that are customer and or revenue focused generally mm-hmm. so um you know margin growth revenue growth if you can figure out you know which which products or divisions are more profitable than others beyond just a gap accounting type of analysis. Um, you know, maybe a regional growth. It's important stuff and board members and other executives will be particularly interested in that. You know, as I look back, I, you know, and I've presented at a lot of board meetings, I can't recall ever being asked at a board meeting what our inventory turnovers were. Mm. You know, it's, it, it's, again, it's important stuff for, sort of running the day-to-day of a business, but it doesn't really give a lot of strategic insight that your fellow executives are going to want to need. So, mm-hmm. you know, I would say things that focus on revenue and profitability and growth are where I would put it. Is there a KPI that like, or a metric that you've clung to that maybe are less known or paid attention to, but still really important? Maybe that fall into, you know, that kind of revenue and profit realm. Sure. I, I think there are two that I, I particularly like and they're kind of related. Uh, the first is revenue per employee, mm. and and the the other one is profit per employee. And you know, I like them for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, one, they're simple, right? So you know, it, any anybody can understand those metrics. You don't, they're not a you know, you don't have to have a finance and background, an accounting background, to understand those two. They're easy to calculate and they're immediately useful. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, it's a great way to benchmark yourself against other companies in your industry. And, you know, it, it, they are only useful within your industry, like a, uh, you know, like a tech, say a software company, their mm-hmm. revenue per employee is going to be a lot higher than a manufacturing company. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you, if you build cars like General Motors, you can't really compare yourself to Oracle, you're going to look mm-hmm. bad by any metric. Right. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're in GM and you do revenue per employee to other car makers, um, you can sort of see, you know, it's a quick and easy way to benchmark how you're doing against your competition. Of course, uh, Mr. Musk changed those ratios a little bit. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. I, and I was about to say, um, <clears throat> Oracle Red Bull Racing, we now are in the car industry. <laughs> no, um, I'm, I'm just a big Formula One fan. So I had to say that. Oh, good for you. Yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a great thing. Yeah, is tech companies are sort of taking over a lot of traditional industries. Yes, but, um, but yeah, like, you know, if you're the CFO of GM, you can do an, a great job of running the company, do some great things. But, you know, to compare yourself to Microsoft or Google, you know, it's, it's not going to work out well for you. Right. So. Makes, makes sense. Makes sense. Well, speaking of technology, 
how has that made the job of the controller and the CFO easier or even harder in your opinion? And uh, in what specific ways? It, it's a, it's a great question, Megan, because like when early in my career as a controller, I actually did a two day close and, you know, young controllers are probably rolling their eyes at me, but I used to brag about that. That was actually considered pretty, I'm sorry, I said two days, I meant two weeks, forgive me. Um, so I did a two week close and that was actually pretty fast because it was so difficult back then to accurately close the books. And, you know, I was in a manufacturing environment, so that was harder than others. But, you know, today you would be fired pretty quickly if you had a, a, a two week close as a controller, you know, so, you know, the technology has just enabled faster and more accurate closings. Uh, things like automation have taken away a lot of the repetitive and, you know, candidly boring tasks that the finance team is doing. And it really allows them to focus on things that empower executives to make better decisions. And then, you know, the other thing is there's a lot of great FP&A tools that didn't really exist even before COVID. A, a bunch of great products have launched since COVID. Uh, and, you know, what they can do is, you know, it empowers people. They can make better decisions and more accurate decisions than ever before. The downside to that, I guess, is because all of these amazing technologies exist. There's just more pressure on people than ever before to get it right the first time. You know, there, there might have been a little bit more tolerance, ambiguity and errors. You know, the thing he's only human or she's only human type of stuff. So, but now, you know, the excuses for, you know, not getting things done on a timely basis, they're kind of gone because a lot of the barriers that made that difficult have gone. And the other thing is, um, you know, that we're, we're in the midst of a data revolution and that's fantastic. But the drawback is uh, I've met a lot of people, they just can't make a decision anymore. They huh. just have so much data yeah. and it, it's, it's all good, but sometimes it's contradictory and it's impossible to figure out, you know, what's the really meaningful data. And that's why I kind of like the revenue per employee and profit per employee, not the be all end all, but, you know, if, if they're going up, you know, generally speaking, your company is improving along with those two ratios. So sometimes you can actually make things more complex than they need to be. That's that's a really interesting point. I mean, we, Megan, how many uh, leaders in finance have we talked to where they, we've, I mean, not even just leaders in finance. I mean, we've talked to entrepreneurs and CEOs and, and business leaders across the board who are constantly telling us, you know, <clears throat> yeah, we have all the data in the world, but it's what, what do we do with that data? What decisions? I mean, I don't even know what decisions or what we're looking at, what, what we need to uh, pull in order to make the right decisions. Um, so that is a very, very interesting point. And I would be remiss not to say that that's, that's what NetSuite helps, you know, our customers do at least, especially with our, you know, tools, our suite analytics capabilities and our NetSuite data warehouse. That is exactly why we created those those products to, to really help, um, to help our customers get the most out of their data and to really understand it, um, in ways that are, that can move the needle for the business for sure. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people don't recognize the history of NetSuite and why it's able to do that. But NetSuite was the first company that offered exclusively an online accounting solution. You know, mm -hmm. other companies gave it, you know, one or the other, but you know, this, believe it or not, I mean, right now we all take it for granted, but when they came out with that, it was kind of controversial. There are a lot of people saying, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You, <laughs> can't, you can't put your accounting in the cloud. What's going to happen to it? You know, it's anyone can steal it. 
you know, they took a lot of heat for that business model and, but, you know, they believed in it and they were very forward looking and, you know, eventually everybody kind of copied what they were doing. No disrespect for other companies, but, you know, they were years ahead of people. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I mean, we, exactly. We are the first, you know, born in the cloud, um, ERP system. Um, and so I know, I know our, uh, our founder would be happy to hear you say that, but, um, but it's, you know, it's definitely, uh, it's come a long way since 20 years ago when people were like, how could be, how could data in the cloud be secure? And now it's, you know, that's really the only, the only way to do it. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, I appreciate could, that. Who would, who would be dumb enough not to, right? <laughs> right now, and, now know, it's the, completely swapped. <laughs> exactly. But you know, it's sort of in the DNA of the company, right? That they're, yeah probably they're always going to be a little bit ahead of the curve on these types of things, whether it be analytics or, you know, whatever's coming down the road two or three years. How did six out of the top seven best performing tech stocks gain visibility and control over financials, inventory, planning, and budgeting with NetSuite by Oracle? Answers at NetSuite.com slash code. NetSuite.com slash code. Well, to close out our convo about your career journey, as you look back on your career and your many CFO roles, what's something that you think you really got right? I think, you know, what I what I was really good at is I think I served as a good mentor to the controllers. Hmm. Um, like, a, I think all of the controllers who ever reported directly to me went on to become CFOs, uh, either at their next job or the one after that. And, you know, they were, I hired well too. It's not like, you know, I hired random people and, and made them superstars. I, I hired good people who had the potential. But, you know, I, I think I did play a role in their journey of making them, you know, helping them make that leap from a controller to a CFO, as I had done. So I think that's something that I did really well. And in terms of uh, things that I um, wasn't so good at, is, is that the natural follow-up question? Oh, you know it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you, you know, it's interesting because my management style back then probably, you know, as a CFO, probably wouldn't fly today. I wasn't really the most collaborative person. I, I wasn't exactly my way or the highway, but I probably had too much confidence in my own vision and my own ideas and didn't listen very well to other suggestions that, you know, actually were probably better than my own. I, but I've, I've learned from that. So I don't, I don't believe I do that anymore. So, well, that's good that, you know, I, I love that you, first of all, isn't it so much easier to always be like, yes, here are the great things I did, but it is so much easier to tell you all the things that I learned from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so. funny how you went right to that. Um, yeah, I didn't even wait the, to be asked. I know you didn't even wait. You're <laughs> like, I, I, I know, I know what I, uh, what I could have done better. Um, but you know, all of, all of your experience, uh, really came to fruition, um, back in 2019, you put, you published a book called the secrets of rockstar CFOs. And I think, you know, what you just talked about in terms of the stuff that you got really right, stuff you could have done better, but then all of your experience is helping controllers become CFOs. Your, your various CFO roles really played into that. Um, but for our listeners who haven't read the book really quickly, can you give a, a, a quick summary on what it's about? Sure. And I, um, I organize a lot of conferences, um, both through MIT Sloan. I'm one of the founders of the CFO Summit. And, um, you know, just from my job at the CFO Leadership Council, too. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the good thing about that is I actually have met some of the best CFOs in the world over right. the years. And, um, you know, I didn't set out to write a book or anything like that. But 
I saw their presentations or I got to know them when they weren't making presentations. And, you know, I am a pretty good listener and I'm intellectually curious and I, I picked their brains. And I actually, I didn't start off to write a book, but I did like a PowerPoint. Uh, it was in the context of, you know, the CFO Leadership Council. I wanted to sort of create a, a kit, if you will, mm -hmm. to help controllers land a CFO job and then be successful once they had it. So I created this deck and then I showed it to a bunch of my friends who were CFOs. And I said, you know, do you think this would be useful to your controllers? And they're like, yeah, but we think you're misreading the audience. They told me I should make it not, you know, sure, include controllers, but they're like, yeah, CFOs can actually learn a lot from that. Mm. So um, I started giving that presentation and a lot of, you know, really good CFOs learned from it. And I was encouraged to write a book, which I did. So it was originally, I called it Habits of Highly Effective CFOs. Mm -hmm. And then when I wrote a book, I didn't know if the good people from the Covey Foundation would would like me plagiarizing their name. Um, <laughs> right, right. So I, I'm, uh, as you, you may know, Kendall, I'm a little bit of a headbanger. And, um, you know, I'm 40 years out, I still identify ACDC as my favorite band. Love it. Guns N' Roses is a close second to the Metallica. And uh, so calling it Secrets of Rockstar CFO seemed like a good, good title for a book that I was writing. I was going to ask, I was going to say, you, you mentioned that you were a headbanger. My next question was going to be your favorite band. So I'm, I'm glad you got to that too. <laughs> ACDC, Back in Black, greatest album in the history of rock and roll. Love it. Love it. Well, so how did you go? There's got to be so much information out there. How did you go about narrowing down the secrets or the traits of these CFOs? Sure. And the, the book had nine. And, you know, they they were all really important. And, you know, one of them was a little surprising, like, um, you know, one of them is work-life balance. And, mm -hmm. and you folks know a lot of CFOs too. And I, I tend to think of CFOs as having a work ethic that is up there with anyone. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't think of them as masters of work-life balance, but, you know, they, they talk about how important it is, you know, making time for family, reading books, exercising, whatever it might be. And, you know, everybody I interviewed, they exercise pretty regularly. I'm not saying they're doing Ironman triathlons or anything insane, but you know, half an hour a day, six times a week, 45 minutes a day, whatever it might be, just find the time to do it. You'll be better at your job. And you know, there's a lot of science that supports that belief too. But um, but you know, there are a lot of them, and I didn't put anything that I I didn't think was not important. But the three that every single person that I spoke to, and I I tried to count, I came up with like 41, I think who contributed to the book. And um, the, the three that were big were strategic thinking and being that strategic partner to the CEO. Um, ethical leadership, that one definitely they all mentioned that they're sort of the ethical conscience of the company. And then of course, I've mentioned a couple of times already, but uh, thinking cross-functionally, being a cross-functional executive, not just a finance and accounting person. I think if, you'd have, if you were to come up with the big three, those would be it. Those are the Batman, Wonder Woman, and Superman of the book. Interesting. Interesting. By the way, Megan, aren't you like an Iron Man triathlete or something <laughs> crazy? <laughs> you said that, Jack, and I was like, I'm pretty sure Megan does that. <laughs> and oh, really? It's, so. it's a secret to success. Uh, I like my <laughs> I like my marathons, my ultra marathons, my ski mountaineering races. But it's funny because I, I used to work in a role uh, where we did a lot of CFO summits and academies. So I would always interact with them. And they were some of the most 
fascinating people I've ever met because of their outside interests, especially, you know, mm-hmm. one guy was like, oh, so-and-so can't be here because he's summiting Everest. I'm like, oh, well, casual, of course, one does. <laughs> yes, of course he's climbing Everest. Right? Yes, yeah. our, we so. should have scheduled around Everest climbing season. <laughs> so I've got an extreme sports person and then a, uh, did you say were you were an indie race car uh, guru, Kendall? Or yeah, Formula, Formula One, one? yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So why is it that you guys are interviewing me? Didn't <laughs> I be the one, uh, I may be the least interesting person on the call for sure. Well, I was going <laughs> to ask, I mean, do you have any, uh, out, your outside hobbies um, that really help with that work-life balance? Yeah, I do Brahma bullfighting. What? Um, no, I'm kidding. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> So, uh, First of all, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. Even, I don't know what made me come up with that. I oh, used to hilarious. skydive a little bit, Ooh, but when wow. I became a dad, I, you know, yeah. uh, the wife just said, "Yeah, that that sort of thing is going to come to an end." Yeah. Um, so, but I used to do. You know, I, I did a lot of daredevil. You know, I did skydiving, I did parasailing, and things like that. I I, I love animals too much to ever do bullfighting. I just yeah yeah I, I yeah. Don't, I don't want to offend any matadors <laughs> in your audience, but I, uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you uh, <laughs> confirming yeah. that information. No, um, yeah, right now it's just kind of a steady diet of work, husband, dad, and brother type of stuff. So, which is which is a great diet. That's a great yeah. diet to have. Um, but yeah. that's cool. Very cool skydiving. See, you you are way more interesting. I watch you know at Formula One on TV. It's not like I'm involved. In it, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, okay, well. We're going to, we're going to switch gears here a little bit and, and maybe uh, less exciting than, you know, bullfighting or skydiving or, you know, Megan's crazy marathoning. Um, but over the past couple of years, uh, we've obviously faced some really, really crazy circumstances, um, COVID and its impact on businesses, including a recession tucked in there now inflation combined with, um, uh, you know, a, a very unfortunate and, and heartbreaking war that has the you know, major global economic impacts, a tight labor market. Um, some economics, uh, economists and, and business leaders really worry about the potential economic slowdown. So I want to kind of tackle some of this a bit again, that, that sounded all very depressing, but, um, you know, it's reality. Um, so looking back, what, what did the best CFOs do right during the starts and surges of COVID? It's a, a great question. And, you know, it's easy to forget how scary it was from a, you know, obviously it's super scary from a personal perspective, but even like from the business perspective, just how scary it was for those first couple of months, you know, a lot of them, you know, I don't know if my company is going to survive. Those were legit questions, right? I mean, you know, we, we hadn't faced a a global pandemic since the Spanish flu of 1918 or whenever that was. And, you know, most of those CFOs weren't really available to, to pick their brain and get advice from. Um, so, you know, we were sort of figuring this out as we went along, as the saying goes, you know, flying a plane while you're building it. But, you know, the, the things that I think they did extraordinarily well is they over-communicated. And again, I mentioned earlier that Fox Business Reporter, who wants to hear from the CFOs, this yeah. would be a case of people want to hear from the CFO. And they communicated with everybody, customers, employees, investors, everybody about, you know, why they should still have faith in the company, why they should stick it out, why the company is going to come back and be more successful. And it's a situation, CFOs are so credible that their communication was paramount to, you know, the survival of the company. 
And then the other thing, you know, simply not panicking. Um, you know, it would have been very easy to panic and whatnot. And, you know, first instinct, okay, let's, let's make sure that we survive. Let's cut 40% of the staff. And, you know, with, with hindsight, that, uh, you know, that would have been a disaster, right? The companies that, that did well and actually thrived during COVID and have come out of COVID stronger than beforehand were the ones that invested in the future. They kept the teams intact. They relied on them. They empowered them. They made the investments in digital technologies and other that are going to give them a long-term advantage. So they basically, you know, planned for success. I think those are the big things. And, you know, the, the other thing, you know, keeping the boss sane, like there was a lot of pressure on CFOs, but probably more pressure when you think about it on company presidents and CEOs. And it was really a lot of CFOs told me, yeah, I was checking in a couple of times a day. You know, I just, I wanted to make sure that, you know, the boss could focus and not take it too seriously. And, you know, I'm, I'm the president of my own company and, you know, my own team did that with me. In fact, my executive assistant, she sent me an email at 11 o'clock at night hmm. and like I responded right away. And she said, I didn't really care about the answer. I was just testing to see if you were still working. She said, <laughs> why don't you go to bed? Don't make me call your wife. Uh, tomorrow. Uh, that's so, funny. But, you know, we, we need you to get rested and focused and everything else. And, and they were right. So a lot of things they did really, really well, which considering there was no one asked for help, you know, right. It's amazing that we, we did as well as we did. Well, so with 2020 hindsight, some companies under Sampley, they did overreact to the initial throes of the pandemic uh, with cutting and just protective measures. Is there a risk of that with um, a possible recession? Do you see that amongst CFOs as a possible uh, reaction, if you will? Yeah, without a doubt, it is the reaction. You know, and I would, again, encourage them to take a bit of a longer view. You know, think about those companies that did do layoffs, you know, three days into COVID. Right. Who's ever going to send a resume to them after that? Right. I mean, would you rather work for the company that said, we're all in this together, no layoffs, no pay cuts. Let's just work our butts off and fix this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, take a longer view. You know, one thing, recessions over the last few decades have been pretty short lived for the most part, Um, particularly in the innovation economy. We bounce back very, very quickly. So, you know, keep that in mind. Just make smart, good long term business decisions. It doesn't mean that you can ignore the moment. And yes, you may have to do some difficult things, but assume that your company is going to be successful, that you're going to survive on the other side of this and build the company that you want to be when the economy gets humming again. Considering the current climate, uh, we're obviously still in an inflationary period. Um, What should CFOs be doing right now, both strategically and tactically to handle this? Yeah, it's a, you know, a lot of things that they could be doing and a lot of great companies have actually been born or they really found their footing during economic crises. Um, You know, just a a couple of iconic companies in America, General Motors, General Electric, uh, you know, Disney, IBM, and an awful lot of others. They were actually born during periods of economic crisis or high inflation. So again, keep sort of that innovator's mindset going. Innovate, change, stay with the times. Um, you know, the other thing is right now, if you are able to stay calm during the crisis, it's a great opportunity. It's a chance if your competition is struggling, well, guess what? It's a, it's a great chance to buy a competitor, right? 
Um, so, you know, do that. It's a great chance to hire talent if your company's, if your competition is struggling a little bit. It's also a great chance to pick up some new customers. So, you know, these are things that you should be focusing on. I'd say focus on growth even more so than during normal times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, based upon everything we just talked about um, and kind of coming back to your book, if you could go back and write it again, knowing what's happened over the past two to three years and <clears throat> looking at whatever will come, uh, will, will continue to really unravel over the next few years, what would you change about the book? And I guess kind of on top of that, are there any plans to refield the survey uh, with all the cha- changes going on uh, in the finance profession? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, an area I would change, one of the chapters was on continuous learning. And, you know, while that's true, I barely touched on the technology aspect of that. And I think CFOs now need to be a lot more technology savvy than they were even two or three years ago. Right. Because when, when you look at, you know, when you look at ways that you can empower employees Uh, increase operational efficiency, and give yourself a long-term competitive advantage over the competition, you know, technology investment's probably the only place you can do all three of those things, right? Mm -hmm. So so I would say, yeah, learn continuously, particularly on how technology is evolving. And, you know, I I even tell, you know, people of my own age, um, you know, get a Gen Z mentor Mm. um, to stay cutting edge. You know, Gen Z, you got to love them. You know, they're, I'm a boomer and we had a tremendous impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Gen Z is going to have a bigger impact because, you know, they're the most well-educated uh, generation ever. Uh, they grew up, they don't know a world before iPhones and whatnot. Uh, right. They're technologically savvy. And they're also the most, at least in the United States, the most diverse group in history. So they can tell you about, you know, your future employees, your future customers, and by the way, give a few years your future bosses too. So, you know, <laughs> right. I, I recommend that. I, I changed the subject a little bit on it. I apologize. But, oh, okay. you know, the, the other area that I would change the book is um, I would emphasize a lot more on communication and leadership, particularly crisis communication and leadership, because it feels like we're just sort of in this pattern that we're jumping from one crisis to another, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if I, if mm-hmm. I were to tell you in 2024, <laughs> Mars would invade. You probably yeah. would think, yeah, there's a 50-50 shot of that happening, right? Right, and I, um, I'm writing a guide to risk management for CFOs right now. Quick little plug for that, but oh, great! You know, so. it's, well, it's impossible because every day something's coming up, and I'm like, can we just set pause until this is uh, done? <laughs> but yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, just give me right? six months of normalcy, would you? But uh, yeah, we don't real. seem like we're going to get that. So. No, not quite. Um, so given that climate and everything else, CFOs are taking on a lot, um, plain and simple. Do you have any advice for CFOs uh, that are looking to be more successful in their role in upskill? I know we talked a little bit about getting a Gen Z mentor, but any other tips? Yeah, the other one, and I actually just did a focus group of CFOs. They were my members. So you know, they weren't necessarily a random cross-section, but I, I interviewed like 70 CFOs from across the United States. And the name of the game to them to stay cutting edge is peer networking. Just, you know, if you, if you have a problem, it's great if you're part of a member organization or just if you have CFOs uh, 
at your fingertips, you can get advice for. Um, you know, that if you're dealing with something, chances are you're not the first CFO to, to have dealt with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe you are, but chances are you, you aren't. So, but even if you are, if you just have a reliable network that you can call upon to help you solve some problems. And, you know, one of the great moments with the CFO Leadership Council at the beginning of COVID, uh, you of course know with the, the PPP loans. And mm-hmm. we were getting a lot of not only contradictory, but wrong information from the SBA. It wasn't their fault. They were, you know, trying to figure it out and get the money in our hands quickly. But there was just a lot of confusion. And we have this tool called CFO Connect where the members can communicate with each other directly. And it was amazing to see them just sharing what they learned. It's like, hey, I, you know, and even like people, the first several who completed it, they would reach out to me and said, I'm happy to do a webinar for the other members to share what I learned and take their questions. So, you know, CFOs, maybe more than other executives will really take care of each other. Uh, Mm -hmm. So develop that peer network. It'll, uh, you know, you'll get more dividends from that than uh, from an MBA or anything else. And I'm only hoping none of my friends from Sloan are listening to that. (laughs) Bringing a full circle here to one of our, uh, to one of our first and early questions. Um, But you know, this is a great segue into the CFO Leadership Council. Um, I, and you kind of answered it, but for our listeners, first, just quickly, what is the CFO Leadership Council? And then second, what really inspired you to, to you know, kind of start that? Um, what inspired it? And is it really that idea of networking, of really being able to learn from fellow people in your same role? Yeah, it was, that was actually the original vision for it. And it's remarkable because I started it, I think, in 2006. So, you know, we're 15, 16 years old. But I started it, I was in a CFO job, and I just, I was a little bit overwhelmed by everything that I was expected to know. And it's a little bit difficult to go to your boss or the board of directors and admit that you don't understand something. Uh, You know, you can probably do that once or twice, but not regularly. So, you know, candidly, I didn't envision it as a business model. I just wanted to um, start a network of my peers, which, you know, Mm -hmm. back then my peers were CFOs for venture-backed startups. And, you know, clearly I uh, struck a nerve. Our first meeting I thought would have six to eight people and we had 52. Wow. And uh, so I continued to do it as a hobby for several years. And it's been my job now, full-time job for about six years. But in short, we're a professional association for CFOs, and our mission is simply to empower CFOs to run their businesses better. And there's uh, about 1,800 of us across primarily North America, although we do have several from outside the United States and Canada. And we have a lot of um, you know, strategic partners that support the mission as well. Uh, in fact, the very first of which was a little uh, software company called that suite. So <laughs> love it. Love it. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense for us. I mean, we work with obviously CFOs, uh, a ton. Um, so that's great. Uh, how can, if for somebody list, uh, tuning in right now, how can another CFO get involved? Well, our website is uh, cfolc.com and you can certainly, uh, you know, check that out. Um, Basically, if you are a legitimate CFO, you would be qualified for membership. We do offer membership to uh, what we call the next generation of CFOs, so controllers and VPs of finance and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you have specific questions, people can text me. Mm-hmm. Um, you can share my text number. I can give it now or, or not. But uh, yeah, I, uh, absolutely. Go for it. And I'll make sure to include not only a link to um, the website, but also this in the description. 
Sure, great. So it's uh, 617-678-0957. It's funny, my niece worked for me for a few years when she mm-hmm. was a teenager, like in high school and college. Mm-hmm. And I just, when I discovered texting, I was addicted. Yeah. So she finally, <laughs> call, she finally called me. She was like 17 or 18 at the time. I was like, you text more than any teenage girl. Can you knock it off? <laughs> that's funny. So that's but it's a, perfect one, for you. Yeah, that's a, a source of pride that I can drive a teenager uh, nuts by texting too much. <laughs> right? I love it. Love it. Um, well, any future plans uh, for the CFOLC? I mean, is there is there any, especially like, again, like all the changes um, we've been talking about as of late, um, what's, what's happening for you guys? Yeah, you know, we, um, the, the live events are still, you know, not what they used to be. So we, uh, we're hoping that soon everybody's really just comfortable getting together in person. And, you know, the last few years we have learned, sure, you, you can network effectively over Zoom and other technologies, but, you know, there's nothing like getting together with people face-to-face and getting to yeah. know each other a little bit, whether it just be a conversation before and after the program or, or meeting for a beer. So that would be sort of, you know, going back to 2019. And the other thing is... Um, you know, we would, uh, I'm going to make a conscious effort to, you know, recruit more younger members to the group, uh, you know, controllers and whatnot, because, you know, I think they can really benefit from the wisdom of the veterans in our group. And I, I know also that they can, that the veterans can actually, you know, benefit from the younger generation becoming part of our community. They, solve problems really well. I mentioned earlier, I'd, I'd like to see CFOs focus a little bit more on technology. Well, you know, younger professionals know that in spades. So I think it can be a lot of mutual benefits if we have a lot of up and coming controllers in our community. And to conclude here, what impact do you hope to leave on the finance world? How do you define success? Yeah, you know, stand on. <laughs> yeah. it is largely like right now, you know, very proud of what we've accomplished at the CFO Leadership Council. And, you know, a lot of people have told me I got my first CFO job because of connection I made here, or I had this overwhelming problem and, you know, the, the community helped me do it. And I take a lot of pride in that. And again, you know, I just want to, you know, continue to do that. And I, I've got, you know, two to five more years left in my career. And I do want to share some of what I've learned with the next generation of CFOs. And because I became a CFO during the dot-com era, which, you know, is just a glorious time, right? I mean, you know, is prosperity, like, uh, at least if you worked in the innovation economy, like we'd never seen the capital is free flowing. It was not unlike today. And, you know, we had just a lot of great opportunities and I just want to make sure that the next generation uh, you know, has as much success as we had. Mm. Yeah, that that's great. Especially, you know, I think that's, you know, nice to hear um, because if you are in a controller role, say now, or if you are on the path to becoming a CFO, hopefully in the future, um, you know, it, times are, times are rough right now. So, um, so like you said, setting, setting them up for success um, and we will come out of this and there will be good times to, to come. Um, but that is, you know, super important and, and definitely, definitely appreciate it. Appreciate every, appreciate all the insight that you provided us um, here today, Jack. And we just look forward to all that there is to come. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it and I appreciate the opportunity. Wow. Um, What an insightful interview that was. And it makes sense for someone who's really seen it all as a finance leader and as a CFO. Um, 
I personally loved his note about what it means to be a CFO, the ability to really lead any team or take on any C-level position with that finance expertise. Um, I thought that's such an interesting way to kind of put it. And we've been talking about the evolving role of the CFO so much lately. Um, that just really kind of shed some new light on it, I thought. Right. And I had actually, I had met Jack briefly uh, before this at Sweet World. He was presenting in a session this past year. And I got a brief idea of his background, but actually being able to jump into it, that was fantastic. I, I had no idea he had so many different CFO roles. And I especially think what he's doing now with the CFO Leadership Council, it's really impressive. And I think particularly important right now um, I, I've done a lot of interviews with uh, CFOs and uh, various different finance teams. And with so much having going on, I think just having a resource like that is so valuable. Truly, truly. And, you know, being able to kind of find other uh, uh, peers and, and people in, in similar roles to, to bounce back, at, you know, ideas and thoughts and, you know, how to get through this um, off of one another is just, like you said, valuable, so valuable. Um, so, Thank you so much to Jack McCullough for joining us on this episode. And if you want to hear more from him, he recently joined us for a webinar and we've left the link in the description of this episode to that. Um, I've also made sure to link out to uh, the CFO Leadership Council if that's something you want to get involved with. Um, and of course, I couldn't end this episode without thanking you, my lovely co-host, Megan. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm always looking forward to these conversations and learning more about our fascinating guests. So it's always the highlight of my day. Yes, and I can't wait for more to come. Um, I also want to make sure that I shout out to our editing crew over at Lampstand. And as always, all of you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you don't want to ever miss any episodes, make sure you subscribe to our channel and give us a rating and a review if you feel so inclined. Thank you so much, and we will talk soon. Bye. You just listened to the NetSuite podcast. Be sure to tune in every week with more NetSuite developments, stories, and insights into the benefits of one integrated system to help you run your business.